Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I am your host, Chris Case. Today, Coach Connor and I discuss something that comes up nearly every time we receive an email from one of our devoted listeners, from you. By the way, please, please keep sending us questions and voice memos. We love them, we appreciate them, and they do so much for us when it comes to creating new episodes. But what is it that is nearly universally included in every piece of correspondence we receive? Well, it's some indication of a listener's quote-unquote threshold. Often that figure is stated as if it is an absolute, as if it's 100% accurate. And that's what we want to address today. How accurate are these numbers, really? Turns out, not very. And as an extension of that, we also discussed just how difficult it is to get an accurate figure for myriad reasons. We'll discuss several of the most common ways to determine your threshold and the advantages and disadvantages of each. Coincidentally, we were already planning to record this episode when Trevor received an unpublished review by a team out of Auckland, New Zealand, led by researcher Ed Maunder at the Sports Performance Research Institute of the Auckland University of Technology. The review is a fantastic summary of this very concept, but it isn't published yet and therefore we can't discuss the findings. That said, the group had a lot of great points that helped shape this episode. Thus, we give them full credit for those ideas in this show. Once the review is published, we'll do a second episode in which we'll interview the researchers and discuss their review. One of the most fascinating concepts we look forward to discussing with them is how this concept of durability factors into threshold measurements. Stay tuned for that discussion coming soon. Now, let's make you fast. Trevor, I know you've been wearing loop strap for years, and it sounds like the 3.0 is a much improved product. I am really impressed with the 3.0. Yeah, I used the 2.0 for a bit, which was actually yours, that I lost it in airport. So Shame I, on you. Yeah, sorry, Chris. <laughs> so I got the 3.0, and, and any niggling issues I had with the 2.0 have been worked out. Battery lasts longer. But what I'm really impressed by after I got it, I started downloading some workouts to compare it to a chest strap. And I have now used multiple wrist-based heart rate monitors. And this is the first one I've personally seen where it is getting heart rate as good as a chest-based chest strap. So it is accurate. The heart rate variability every once in a while at the 2.0, I got some wonky numbers. This just seems to, to give a, a more realistic, more accurate reading of my heart rate variability. They have worked out anything that I would think was a, a kink in the 2.0. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Loop. We've been asked this a bunch of times. I actually wrote an article about it a while ago, but this whole question of threshold, which we just think is this really simple number, easy to get at, easy to determine. That, no, the, I mean, the, the deeper you dive into the science, the deeper you dive into this question, the more complicated it gets, and you realize the harder it is to actually determine this number. Uh, or even just simply define it. 
So I've been looking forward to doing this episode. I was surprised to see that while I wrote an article about it, we actually hadn't specifically done an episode about it. Uh, I also do need to give full credit here. Uh, While we were planning this episode, I actually coincidentally got an unpublished review from this team out of Auckland led by Ed Monder. Uh, addressing exactly this question. And it's one of those things I can't really unread it. So I will give them full credit that they their review has influenced this show, but I'm not going to mention it through this episode. It is unpublished. So just need to give them credit, uh, but also show them the respect of we don't want to discuss a review until it is finished. Great. And yeah, we've we've spoken certainly about some of the things people will hear today, FTP, MLSS. We've defined some of these things, but we, we haven't defined all of them, and we've never really dissected each in the way that we're going to do today and, and try to get a sense for you know, pros and cons of each, why it's so important to get this number right, how what implications it has for training, racing. Uh, declines in in um, some of the accuracy of of metrics that you might rely quite heavily on. So all of that and more today. Yeah, I would say the theme for today. This is a, a visual that I, I, for some reason, just came to my head that I kind of like. Is hitting threshold or figuring out your threshold number is kind of like trying to hit a bullseye on a dartboard from 100 feet away when that dartboard is moving. This is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, you might you might actually hit the bullseye, but it's very unlikely. <laughs> right. <laughs> more, more than not, you might throw the dart and the dart hits the wall instead of the dartboard. Right. And that's really important because I think there is a general belief that it is really easy to figure out your threshold power or your FTP or whatever you want to call it. And we'll, we'll go into all this different terminology that, yeah, no, I can figure that out. I, I've got this number on whatever software I'm using. That's a pretty accurate number. And we know this because often we get emails from people asking us questions. And the first thing they go is, well, my threshold power is this or my FTP is this. And whenever I read that, my response is always... How do you know? Are you certain? And that's what we're going to get across in this episode, I hope, which is, no, it's actually really hard to get an accurate number. And worse, as we'll explain, you might get an accurate number on Tuesday. That doesn't mean it's going to be an accurate number on Wednesday. It's that good old, you'll hit the bullseye every once in a while, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, and that's I think really going to be interesting to talk about the the how this shifts and and what effects that has on so many other things. This cascade of of issues that you might run into. I'm not not trying to be overly dramatic about it, but it, yeah, it, it, some people rely heavily on on this date one data point to support a lot of other formulas, and um, it's just good to know what impacts that has. So, shall we dive into this? Let's do it. Yeah. So I guess since we never actually technically did an episode on this, but I wrote an article about it, I just want to start by saying when I wrote that article, I just out of interest went, you know, I've heard a bunch of different terms for describing your threshold. Uh, so 
I, I wanted to see how many are out there. And I came up with a list of over 30. And I'm actually looking at a study or a review right now discussing the, the topic. And here's just their short list. And they even say this isn't comprehensive. Sorry, I'm starting in the middle of a sentence, but the rest of it's on the next page. I'm just going to start in the middle of a sentence. Or enable an accurate estimation of maximal metabolic steady state. Include the lactate threshold, gas exchange threshold, GET, ventilatory threshold, lactate turn point, LTP, anaerobic threshold, the onset of blood lactate accumulation corresponding to an absolute blood lactate concentration of 4 millimoles, OBLA, individual anaerobic threshold, lactate minimum, and respiratory compensation threshold. We've also talked a lot in this show about VT2. And one of my favorites, I wrote a paper about this in college, an increase in VE over VO2 without an increase in VE over CO2 and an increase in FeO2 without a decrease in FeCO2. Don't ask me to explain that one. I wrote that paper a long time ago. <laughs> that, that really is. And you have to do gas exchange to get that one. It's, it's a tough one, but it's actually pretty good. The important thing here is each one of those that I just read, it's not just terminology. Each one comes with a different way of measuring and will produce a slightly different number. So this idea that there is one threshold, here it is, it's really easy to figure out, is just not the case. And you're going to have different people that are going to stand behind different things. I've said on the show many times that I really like the MLSS, Maximal Lactate Steady State. Uh, but this review that I just read from is actually a comparison of MLSS and what's called critical power, which we're going to dive into those two in this episode. And actually, this review makes a very strong case for no, MLSS should not be the gold standard. Critical power should be. Is it worth defining briefly this term threshold then just as a construct because you're talking about how some people think ah, it's easy to determine my threshold but we're talking about 30 40 different methods to determine quote unquote your threshold so what is briefly threshold what are we trying to determine here right so i'll give you the best that i can possibly give for a definition but you're you're getting at the key point here, which is the, there isn't even consensus on what's the correct term. So you know, most common is probably just talking about your anaerobic threshold. But there are some researchers out there who, when they hear that, are going to cringe because they go, oh, it's not an anaerobic threshold. It's actually a continuum. You're still working aerobically, so you can't say that. We can't even land on a, here's a set term. So... You know, I just go with the cloaklear, which is everybody talks about threshold. And again, well, you have an anaerobic threshold. You also have an aerobic threshold. We've talked about VT1, VT2. So even that's not accurate. So it's really tough. Any term that you use, any way that you use to define it, there's going to be somebody who goes, well, no, that's not quite right. So let's just, for the purposes of this episode, we're talking about threshold. And we've talked about... There's the two thresholds, that, that lower aerobic threshold, that higher, I'll use the term anaerobic threshold. Today, we're just talking about the anaerobic threshold. And if you go into the literature, you're going to probably find 20 different ways of defining this, though there is what seems to be, at least from what I've read, uh, a fairly consistent 
definition, this is certainly what I've subscribed to, which is this anaerobic threshold or whatever you want to call it, uh, is the highest intensity at which you can maintain metabolic sustainability. Uh, so let me explain what that means, and I'm sure there's probably a little better wording than that. But you have a variety of metabolic markers, lactate levels, your pH balance, a whole bunch of things that you can look at. Let's just talk about lactate, because that's, that's a simple one. When you are really low intensity, lactate is going to stay at baseline, which is right around or just below one millimole. Uh, per liter. Uh, as you increase intensity, you will hit a point where it will start to rise. So it might go up to two millimoles, it might go up to three millimoles. But even though it rises, if you stay at that intensity, it will level off. So you'll go up to three millimoles, but then stay at that intensity, and you're going to stay right around three millimoles. So that is sustainable, higher, but sustainable. There is a certain point, and you look at some of the older literature, uh, they thought it was four millibols for everybody. You hit four millibols, lactate, it's no longer sustainable. It's actually a huge amount of individual uh, variability. But the point being, you hit a certain intensity where that will no longer level off. It will just keep rising. So there's a bunch of markers or several markers that you can look at, but lactate threshold is that, or sorry, anaerobic threshold is that point where you can no longer sustain levels, where they're just going to keep rising. It means that you are going to reach fatigue very quickly. Very good. Well, now do we want to address some of these methods, like critical power and MLSS, and define them even further? Yes. So let's just quickly give the big, broad overview. We're going to talk about a couple ways of defining threshold. One is critical power. We're going to talk about maximal lactate steady state. We're going to talk about incremental exercise assessment, which is just your in-lab testing. And we're going to talk about FTP. So we're going to talk a bit about the pros and cons of each. We're mostly going to talk today about using them to define threshold, but some of these tests define more than that. So other variables that might get measured by some of these tests are your VO2 max, your economy, your, both your thresholds, you can then determine your training zones, and also some of them will show your substrate utilization, so how much fat you're using versus how much carbohydrate. So with that, as you said, Chris, do we want to dive into critical power? Yeah, let's do that one first. Okay. CP, as uh, you'll hear it referred to, CP. So I admit, before I did my research for this, I had always been a big fan of maximal lactate steady state, but there are some good arguments for why critical power may be a better metric to use. So let's talk first about how it's measured, uh, which gets a little complicated. It's not an easy test. It requires a series, actually, of tests that last between 3 and 15 minutes, and it's basically you do each of these tests to failure. Must it be done in a laboratory? Preferably, you want it to be controlled, so preferably in a laboratory. Uh, but yeah, I mean, short of that, 
finding a good hill where you can go and throttle yourself uh, could probably work and then sending in the data. So we won't, we won't dive into that, but generally testing with, with CP, when you, you read about it um, in the literature, yeah, they're doing it in a lab and they're keeping it pretty controlled. Three minutes is the minimum because you are trying to achieve VO2 max and the belief is below about two minutes and it's impossible to achieve VO2 max. So let's take a quick step back. Critical power, the whole concept's been around for a long time. I'll explain why in a second. There seems to have been a lot of research that was conducted on it in the 80s. This is back when Tabata was coming up with, with his protocol. And part of it was because he was trying to study this concept of, of critical power. And you can't talk about critical power without talking about Watt Prime. So let me explain both. And this is going to be difficult to do without visualizing this. It might be good to go to a web browser and bring up a picture of this. But anybody who's using modern software, you'll be familiar with the power duration curve which is this curve that shows your peak power from one second all the way to the longest ride you've ever done. So it'll show the best one second power you've hit, the best two second power you've hit, the best three second power, and it keeps going out all the way to five hours or whatever it happens to be. It's usually kind of like an L-shaped in that it's high at the short end and, and lower at the, at the tail end. Right. And it goes, it drops down. Right. So before you had all this sophisticated software that could track all of your peak powers, this is when they came up with this test for critical power, which is the idea of let's do a three-minute test, let's do a five, five or six-minute test, let's do a test of these varying lengths, all of which are to failure, all of which you need to achieve VO2 max, and that's then going to create the shape of the curve. So that, that higher end... As you said, it starts very high and then it drops quite precipitously and then levels out. All these tests are designed to find the shape of that. That point where it levels out, and I cannot pronounce this. You know, I'm not good with terms like this. Asymptote? Asymptote, thank you. Yeah, that's a tough one. So that leveling out point or stretch of the curve is what we would consider critical power. So if you just think about this rationally, if you look at that curve and at five minutes you're, say, 250 watts, but at 30 minutes you're 245 watts, it's, it's holding pretty level. That means you're sustaining that power. And remember, critical power is all about what is sustainable. So... Hence, that's how you estimate your critical power. Now, this part gets a little hard to explain without seeing the visual. Uh, I think Chris is going to post a critical power graph on the website, so you might want to look at this or just do a Google search while I explain this. But you now have this power duration curve, which we just described, you then draw this horizontal line through the leveling out of that curve. That represents your critical power. Now, the question is, how do you determine watt prime? Well, there's something in science called the area under the curve. So easiest way to explain this is if you look at this power duration curve with a critical power line uh, cutting through the more level part, uh, 
when you get into those short durations, those curves are going to diverge. If you took a marquee or a highlighter and filled in that area between the critical power line and the power duration curve, and then you measured the area of that highlighted space, that area under the curve, that's your watt prime. And that's why it's called a capacity. It's not a rate. You're, you're not seeing how quickly you're producing anaerobic power. It's basically saying, here's how much power you have above critical power. And again, well, it's often referred to as anaerobic capacity. It's not. Critical power is closer to your threshold. Threshold is below VO2 max. VO2 max is your highest point of, your, your highest rate of, of aerobic metabolism. So a lot of that watt prime is still produced aerobically. But the idea here is you have this critical power, which is sustainable. Here is the quantity, let's say, of power that you have above that sustainable power. And that's, uh, yeah, it's not filling it. You're not filling in the huge spike of your sprint power. It's a rectangle that goes on the lower edge from your critical power line up to, um, but stays beneath that, the spike of your, your power duration curve. Right, right. So again, I don't want to get too scientific. I'm trying to describe this, this graph, but just think of it as the volume between critical, that critical power line and your power duration curve. Um, that is your, your watt prime. So the, the more you have there, uh, the more anaerobic capacity you have. Uh, the closer those two lines are, the less anaerobic capacity you have. So a time trialer who would have a big critical power and not a big sprint or short duration power, they're going to have a small watt prime. A sprinter who's going to have a lower critical power but have quite a high uh, short duration power, they're going to have a, a large watt prime. And the idea is when you do this test, each duration, so from the 3 minute to the 15 minute, Again, you, you need to go to failure, and the belief is you hit failure simultaneously at the point that you hit both VO2 max and you completely deplete your watt prime. Mm. So have I completely lost you? <laughs> it does make sense. You know, I pulled up a browser and um, took a look at what you were trying to describe. We'll, we'll put an example of this power duration curve with Watt Prime and its definition on our website. So check that out. So as you were describing it, I could, you know, I, I understand the struggle to describe it. it it's difficult, but uh, it all makes sense. It does. So I have admit that I've been critical of this concept because A, it is highly theoretical. Uh, and also Watt Prime, everybody says, well, it's anaerobic capacity. But it's not because you're generating a lot of that power still aerobically. It's just how much power you can generate above critical power, which is both anaerobic and aerobic. So I'd always had my issues with it. But at the end of the day, critical power is getting at that definition we just gave of, anaer of anaerobic threshold, which is the highest sustainable level and you are using just simple power tests, well, 
shouldn't simple yes hard yes but you're using a series of power tests to figure out what is your highest sustainable level obviously one of the issues here is doing all those tests is really really hard particularly if you're trying to train because you need to do each one fresh there's five tests so you pretty much have to take a week week and a half off training in order to do this so they have come up with a single three-minute test, just for practical reasons, that seems to be fairly decent. There's been a series of reviews of it, and, and it, it, it's pretty close to doing the full five tests. It's some, some studies have said not, not quite there. Oh, people are always looking for that shortcut, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> yes sometimes if you want accurate numbers, you just got to put in the work and, and carve out some time to do something like this. Agreed. You know, but there's always that balance of you, you got to get decent numbers, but you also have to keep training. You remember, we, have St we had Steve Neal on the show a couple episodes ago, and he uses his three-minute test. And I would say for practical purposes, it's quite often good enough. Did he refer to this as his MAP test, uh, MAP Yes, basically. Well, map test. So map, whenever I hear somebody use map, I immediately go, ah, you're Canadian, because that's a term that we use a lot up there. Uh, a map test is just a, a way of getting at uh, what, what in the U.S. they'd refer to as VO2 max power. I see. So MAC, map stands for maximum aerobic power, which is just a, pretty much a synonym for VO2 max. All right. The one nice thing about this is not only does it give you an estimate of your anaerobic threshold, but you also determine this watt prime, this how much you can, how much power you, you can put out above your threshold. And that can be very informative when generating intervals, because sometimes you want to do interval work where you completely deplete that watt prime, and you can design fairly good interval work where you can ensure that both watt prime is depleted and then make sure the recovery is long enough that you can replete watt prime. Well, we'll have to do some critical power testing at some point, Trevor, and compare. Sure, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that um, my watt prime is going to be bigger than your watt prime just based on uh, our phenotypes as riders. Yeah, I'm going to assume that if you looked at my graph, there there is no watt prime. There is just nothing <laughs> above the threshold. You might call it a sliver. It's not a rectangle. It's just a little tiny little sliver of, of gray in between a curve and a dotted line. You're going to get some poor scientist in a lab going, Captain, I just can't measure it. <laughs> Was that your... Uh... It's too small. Yeah, that's my horrible Scotty. I can't do accents, you know that. <laughs> I can't even do a Canadian accent. That's Give very true. That's very true. You are a man without a country or an accent at this point. Okay, let's move on. Shall we talk about maximal lactate steady state? We should. We should. So you've heard me talk about this before and i'm a big fan of maximal lactate steady state and after reading the, my this review that came out in 2019 that compared critical power to mlss i'm going to adjust my opinion a little oh man which is i think as a theoretical concept i still like maximal lactate steady state the best 
because it's based purely on physiology. But I would say the practical application has serious issues or has issues to make it difficult to truly determine MLSS. So based on that, this, this 2019 review made a good case of we really probably should be using critical power. Well, tell us why. Tell us more about this. Well, so again, let's start by talking about how this is measured. And if you thought the critical power test sounded miserable, let's talk about the maximal lactate steady state test. Maybe this is why you liked it too, because I know you're a masochist. Oh, it is miserable. It is absolutely miserable. So now one good argument was made that it is somewhat arbitrary how the protocol was determined. It has adjusted over time, but where it has landed is you need to do a 30-minute test and your maximal lactate steady state. So again, it's you, we want to see things leveling off. We, we want to see you hit a steady state, as the name implies. So what they want to see is from the 10-minute point to the 30-minute point of that test, we should not see your blood lactates rise more than one millimole per liter. So in other words, it's steady. Sure. Here's the question you're asking of, well, how do you pick a power to do that 30-minute test at to figure that out? The answer is you do it a bunch of times. Yeah. You have to do a series of 30-minute tests, each one fresh. So again, this is going to have a big impact on your training. And you just keep going up until you do one test at one wattage and you meet those criteria, and then you do another test at a higher wattage, and you no longer meet that criteria. So let's say you do a test. I'm actually looking at a graph right now, which shows this athlete doing the test at 270 watts, and they met the criteria. They, they leveled out, so between 10 and 30 minutes, they, they stayed within one millimole. Then they did the test at 280, and lactates kept going up. Hmm. So the way the protocol works is you then say it's 270 because you picked the last one that you accomplished. This is actually quite, I, I would say, a little bit, at least a little bit unusual because it's only 10-watt increments. Sometimes you'll see athletes do higher, like sometimes it'll be 20-watt increases or 30-watt increases. Well, probably not 30-watt, but 15, 20-watt you'll see. The issue is you take the lower one. So let's say you did one at 270, you met the criteria. You did another one at 290, you did not meet the criteria. It could be your actual maximum lactate steady state is 285. Right. But that doesn't matter. You're going to take the 270. So by definition, MLSS will always underestimate. Always. Because unless, unless you did a third test and tried it at 280, and then you would... You could, I suppose you could keep doing tests to refine this number, correct? Right, which would be absolutely miserable, but you could potentially do that. And let's also go back to what we said at the beginning of this episode, which is you fluctuate day to day. So again, it's like trying to hit a moving dartboard. Hence, you kind of go, well, we're close enough. It's 270 plus, so this is where you get into that plus or minus 5% or 5 watts. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So that is one issue, is that it will always underestimate. Always, 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 because you always take the lower value. Uh, one of the criticisms of critical power is that it tends to estimate your threshold about 5% higher than MLSS. But if MLSS always underestimates, that's actually an argument for critical power. Sure. So that is one issue. Now, let's, we're not going to dive deep into this, but taking lactates is tough. Some researchers, you know, Jared, who we've talked with many times, he's really good at it and he has the right equipment. But you're going to go to a lot of labs where they don't, where the researcher isn't very good. I still remember a friend asking me to help him with his lactate test that his coach wanted him to do. His coach mailed the equipment for us to use. And I'm sitting there going, we're not doing this in the lab. How, how, he, I don't have a lactate analyzer here. How do you expect me to do all this? Well, he mailed all the stuff. He had a single finger uh, pricker. This is a little thing that punches a hole in the tip of your finger so you can get the blood. Yep. Uh, so he wanted me to just keep reusing it, which <laughs> just gets into all sorts of pollution and corruption issues. Yes. Uh, and then I was to put a couple drops of blood into separate vials, uh, then not refrigerate them and mail them back to him. There were so many issues in this, but, you know, and he, he sent me the results later. It's like, what's your interpretation of this? And my, I just emailed back a very nice, uh, my interpretation was this was a waste of time. <laughs> right. right. There, there wasn't really anything done correctly in that in, instance. Right. So you laugh at this, but there are a lot of, you can go and get tests where it, it's that bad. So when you're talking about one millimole increase over 10 to 30 minutes, from the 10-minute point to the 30-minute point, there's a lot that can go wrong. There's a lot of measurement error that can cause you to misinterpret or get bad results. So again, I, uh, in concept, I love maximal lactate steady state. Uh, but the practical side of having to do a whole bunch of 30-minute hard tests, of getting accurate lactates, of the fact that you are always going to underestimate uh, when you get into the application, it's got issues. Yeah, and, and obviously not to mention the fact that this has to be done in a lab to be able to um, frequently test someone's lactate while they're right while they continue to ride exactly so it's not an easy test to do at home actually it's not a possible test to do at home so yeah i mean both critical power and maximal lactate steady state testing suffer from it's not something you can do on your own you generally need a lab or you need somebody there to test you, particularly with MLSS. You have to sacrifice a fair amount of training and you have to do a whole series of really tough testing. By the way, one other issue with MLSS, if you're doing a whole series of 30-minute time trials to try to find it, uh, if you have somebody who's less trained, those tests are going to train them. So... As you're continuing to refine this, their their MLSS might actually be changing. 
Yeah, there you go. That's an interesting point. I, didn't, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's that's very true. Yep. So let's move on to what's next. Yeah. So incremental exercise test. Um, we we really did dive pretty deep into physiological testing in episode 80, 89. You mentioned Jared Berg, a former lead physiologist at the University of Colorado uh, uh, Sports Medicine and Performance Center. Um, so re- refer back to that episode for a lot more detail here. But th- this is sort of what we generally refer to as physiological testing, but that is a pretty vague term. Right. And I would say if we're going to actually not spend a lot of time on this because we did do a whole episode on it. And unlike MLSS and CP, where there's a fairly standardized protocol, there are probably a hundred different protocols for, for the, the step tests. Uh, so really hard to, in five minutes, try to explain them all. Mm-hmm. Uh, even to the point we talked about the fact that there, there's two major types. There's your VO2 max test where you're, you're increasing wattage fairly, uh, regularly. And then there's the, the lactate, um, step test where you are having stages that are much longer. So the, the shortest I've seen is three minutes. The longest I've seen is Dr. Sam Milan's protocol, which is 10-minute stages, which takes a really long time to do. So you know, standard might be, you know, what you typically see is a five-minute stage with maybe 25-watt increases. So you might start at 100 watts, do that for five minutes, and you go up to 125, do that for five minutes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you can't go anymore. In each stage, you're taking lactates. What you end up with is a lactate curve that at these lower intensities, you're going to see a a very level lactate. Uh, And at a certain point, it starts to kick up, and then it starts to go up quite quickly. So again, I'm giving the really quick summary. Listen to that episode if you want to learn a lot more about this. But the idea here is that point where it starts to go up Uh, corresponds with your lower threshold. What we talk about is your aerobic threshold. And then there is a point higher up that indicates your anaerobic threshold. And there are a whole bunch of ways of figuring out uh, what that point is. So one of the simplest is to just say when you hit four millimoles of blood lactate, you've hit your anaerobic threshold. Problem is there's a huge amount of individual variability there. They have a whole bunch of different ways of looking at this graph and figuring out where does that threshold lie. One is you're, you're looking for the, the deepest point in that curve. There's another method called the DMAX method, which you just need a bunch of rulers and interesting tools. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> like I don't a chisel wanna... and a pickaxe? I was about to describe this. I'm like, wait a minute. I couldn't even describe the CP curve. I'm not even going to try to describe this one without a visual. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that that uh, with this test, there's a fair amount that goes into the interpretation of the test. And um, there's different methods to do that. There's also, as we, we spoke about in episode 89 with, with Jared, who's done literally hundreds, if not thousands of these tests, 
there's some art to knowing uh, how to interpret it. Right. So the short version of this is all those issues that we talked about with collecting lactates, collecting accurate lactates when we were talking about MLSS apply here as well. So it's quite possible to get pretty bad lactates. It's quite, you know, there, there are really good lactate analyzers. There's not so good lactate analyzers. So that's a whole issue. Now let's put that aside and just say, yes, somehow we had an amazing test. All the right equipment was used and we got incredibly accurate lactates. And we now have this curve that we just talked about. There was a study done by Yamnik that then took these different methods for analyzing or figuring out where the anaerobic threshold was, and they found, depending on which method you used, so again, one single curve, one single test, they found the anaerobic threshold could be anywhere from 243 watts to 338. Oh my, that's a huge range, huge <laughs> So you need somebody who's really good at looking at these graphs and figuring out where your threshold is at. Jared was, was excellent at this, in my opinion. But there's a lot of people out there who will look at this curve and go, oh, well, you're 250. Another person will look and go, well, you're 310. Mm. That's a big difference. Yeah, so much so that, yeah, that, that, that's just massive and can r really run you astray if, if you're not uh, having it done by a, a, a really experienced, reputable source. Right. Now, the one benefit to this test, well, so we talked, to, those are some of the disadvantages. The other disadvantage is you need to find a lab. You have to go somewhere where they have all this gear. The one advantage of this testing method over all the others is we talked at the beginning about all the different variables that you can measure. So VO2 max, economy, substrate utilization, both thresholds. This is the one test that can give you, if you, as long as you use gas exchange, which means you wear a mask and it measures uh, gas exchange. Um, it is the one test that can give you all that information. Yeah, in that way, it's robust. Obviously, you know, we're trying to give an overview of these different tests. We've both been tested several times at uh, the performance center and you can be certain that the data you're getting there and the interpretation you're getting there is top notch um, and you're getting all of these other um, components tested at the same time so it's a it's a great way it's a great tool yes it's totally it's totally worth it but caution being not every facility, not every lab is as good as the performance center. So shop wisely when you're looking for this. Right. And even then, you talk about looking for a good performance center. Uh, for a lot of people, it's an issue of finding a performance center at all. I have an athlete in Washington, D.C. This is a major city. This is a big city. There's nobody in Washington, D.C. who does this, at least not that he could find. Again, uh, refer back to episode 89 where we actually go much deeper into all the different components here, what your what um, gas exchange is, what that data tells you, and so forth. Do we want to move on to one that I can almost guarantee every listener has heard of, FTP? Absolutely. Let's talk about FTP. 
This is a, as you said, because everybody's heard of it, this is a term that gets thrown around a lot. And I think it runs that risk uh, because it's thrown around so much. People don't really, or a lot of people don't really understand what it means. If somebody had the trademark on FTP, they'd run the risk of having it be generic at this point. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I (laughs) I actually... I, I do think I think it is trademarked, isn't it? Oh, maybe Does, it is. <laughs> doesn't Dr. Coggin and Hunter Allen or Training Peaks own the uh, the trademark on this? Well, you're you're probably right. Actually, I didn't even think of it like that. But yeah, they probably do. Um, but it gets thrown around by so many people in so many circumstances um, for so many different reasons. And I'm I you know again, it's popular for what it. For, for certain reasons, and we'll talk about that, but it's also completely misunderstood in a lot of ways. Yes. For those, for those same reasons. Right. But let's give our credit. This is a concept that was developed by Dr. Coggin and Hunter Allen a long time ago, and it had a, a real good purpose to it, which is what we were talking about. All these other methods generally require a lab, are really hard to do, and for most people, are just not practical or possible. So they needed some sort of out-on-the-road test, ability to come up with this number, and that was the origins of FTP. First of all, a really important thing to understand about it is it's sort of physiological, but it's really not, is the way I think of it. It's, it's based on a physiological concept that when we were talking about sustainability, remember I said sustainability always has a time component. So nothing is sustainable if you go long enough. So the generally what you see is that critical power, MLSS, the, the belief is they're, those wattages are sustainable for about an hour. Now this has been put to the test and it actually widely varies. Uh, anywhere from, uh, read some studies where they found that MLSS was sustainable or critical power was sustainable for only 20 minutes. I've seen some that have found 40 minutes, some that go, yeah, this was sustainable for an hour. But in theory, your anaerobic threshold power is sustainable for about an hour. So hence FTP, to determine your true FTP requires an hour test. Got to go as hard as you can for an hour. That doesn't address how are you generating that power? Are you somebody that just has this amazing ability to go above threshold? Are you somebody who actually doesn't have the ability to hurt very much? That's important because let's say you're not a very good time trialer. You don't have the ability to hurt very much. You might go out your threshold, true threshold, that highest sustainable power might be say 250 watts but you're just not good in an hour time trial so you might do 225 that's going to underestimate so that's why i say it's sort of physiological but it's really not does that make sense yeah it does absolutely yeah so that's that's my bias the other thing is doing an hour test is tough though we had dr seiler come on the show and said, look, I did an hour test right before this show. I think that was the second episode we had him on. Yeah, it was a while ago, but I I think he actually does this uh, more often than every time he comes on our show. So you can, you know, 
two, three, four times a year. I don't know, but he likes it. He's a glutton for punishment. Here you have a test where because of ability to perform this test, even just doing an hour test may or may not hit that true physiological threshold for you. Most people don't like to do the hour test, so what's becoming really popularized is the 20-minute test. And this, again, Dr. Coggin and and Hunter Allen put this in their original book and popularized this concept of do a 20-minute test and then multiply it by 95%. This gets back to my comment about people do like shortcuts you know you talk, spoke about the the critical power test and it's a series three minutes six minutes up to up to 15 minutes but there is now this quote unquote um, substitute where you can just do the three minute and then run it through a formula and get your critical power right. number this is the equivalent here and and yeah this is this is very popular I I would I would take a guess that most people that um, throw around their FTP number, haven't done an hour test. They've probably done some 20-minute uh, or a series of tests where they take that 20-minute at the end of, um, like we've spoken about before, Neil Henderson's protocol, something like that. We, we recently spoke about that with Steve Neal on a question and answer episode. And they estimate this based on a shortened version of the hour. Right. So this is where we're getting into fuzziness, where you can end up with a number that doesn't serve you because there's already issues with the one hour. Now you're doing a 20-minute test. When you're doing a 20-minute test, this is where if you have that big anaerobic capacity, you can kind of physiologically cheat. Uh, we're trying to get at what is your your highest sustainable, mostly aerobic effort. Uh, but if you bring in a whole lot of anaerobic metabolism, you can get a little higher than that. Uh, and I see that with some athletes. Uh, other issues with this is they have started doing tests to say, how accurate is this 20-minute test multiplied by 95%? And what they have found is that it tends to overestimate MLSS by 5 to 7%. So they said, let's compare this FTP 20-minute test to both of those. And they found it overestimated MLSS by about 5 to 7%. Now, if you remember, CP tends to be about 5% higher than MLSS. So they also compared it to CP and found that, well, it averaged out to being basically the same, there was poor agreement. So from athlete to athlete, you, you, you just didn't get them matching up always very well. Uh, so not the best metric always. And one study that I read basically said better to multiply, to get a, a true estimate of your, your 60 minute power, you really need to multiply your 20 minute power by, by, by about 90% but huge athlete variance as well. And particularly a higher level of the athlete, the, the closer to that 95% you get. So it's a real rough estimate. And fortunately, I see a lot of athletes that go and do the 20-minute test and go, oh, right, I love that number. And they just plug that number into their FTP. 
and then they're really dramatically overestimating their FTP power. This does being, bring a, a very big question to my mind, playing devil's advocate here. We've walked through each of these tests, and we've been critical of each of these tests. None, none is perfect. Some are easier to perform than others. Some take a lab to perform, and that might be out of the range or out of possibility for a lot of people. But you, you do need something. So what is the harm in some of these estimates? And I know that's a big question. There's nothing as long as you understand that this is not, when you get that number, that FTP that you see in your software, it is not gold. It is not a, this is absolutely it. You know, the thing I was going to finish up with saying for FTP is that basically it's not a great correlate to your anaerobic threshold. But doing regular FTP tests is very good at showing improvements in your performance over time. So if you keep doing those 20-minute tests, it could be 20, 30 watts off of your actual true physiological anaerobic threshold. But if the course of the season, that number goes up 30, 40 watts, you're stronger. That, that you, can test, you can rely on. So that's one of the benefits is you can see your improvements over time. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is offering 50% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter FASTTALK at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Loop. Trevor, I know that the, you know there are some software out there that likes to estimate your threshold power. What, uh, what do you think of those? What's their value and what are some of the shortcomings? Again, I, th- I think there is some value to this. Interestingly, at least with Training Peaks and WKO, so they call it their MFTP, uh, which is this estimated FTP. Uh, I actually find it kind of funny that they use FTP because their method is much closer to critical power than actual FTP. So it's not based on seeing what's the best one-hour power you've, you've done in the last 42 days or 90 day, whatever time period you're using. They actually use that power duration curve. So all good software now can show you your power duration curve, which you were talking about before, which is that peak one second power all the way up to peak five hour power. These estimates that you see in the software does exactly what CP does, which is look for that. I've already forgotten how to pronounce that word. What's the word again, Chris? The asymptote. Thank you. It looks for that, that point, that leveling in the curve, and then draws that line through it and says that is your estimated threshold power. So it's actually not too bad. It can be a really good guide. There's just a couple things to be aware of is one, in the software, your power duration curve is based on the best one second power you have hit in that. So you always give a time period for this estimated FTP. And by default in WKO and training peaks, it's 42 days. 
So it is using your best one second in the last 42 days. It's using your best five minute in the last 42 days. It's taking all your best. So you might have had a race that was an absolute banner performance. That's what's being used. So be a little bit concerned about that. And actually, Tim did address that in the show and said they've, they've made this a little more sophisticated where they avoid having this incredible day really throw off your numbers. So that's, that's getting a little bit better. But also remember that if they just did the straight curve of the best one second, best two second, best three second, and so forth, it's actually not a very smooth looking curve. It can be all over the map. So they have to do a lot of smoothing of that curve. And when you smooth, that's going to affect, to, it can actually affect quite dramatically the shape of the curve. So to give you an example, I have an athlete I'm working with right now. He's not doing any racing because nobody's racing right now. We've been doing a ton of threshold work because he's decided that he, he wants to try and do a, a PR on a time trial course. That's something he can do by himself. So we were getting his estimated FTP up really high. But finally hit a point where I said, we're just doing nothing but threshold work. You're turning into just this uh, tank with no top end. So I said, I want you to go out and do some sprint work. So he did a little bit of sprint work, went out, did a couple sprints. It was the first time in months he broke probably 500 watts. So that suddenly changed quite dramatically the shape of his curve. And in that one day, his estimated FTP dropped 30 watts. Huh, interesting. Yep. So you got to take, if you're going to use that, you got to take some responsibility to keep that curve accurate, which means you still have to go out and do a bunch of tests, make sure you're hitting some top end power, make sure you're doing some good longer range power to make sure the shape of that curve actually accurately represents you. If you go to a race like the, the tour of the Gila and on the, you know, the first two stages are pretty big, pretty big days. And you might go into that race thinking, Oh, my FTP is 300 Watts. You do fine in the first day, you do fine in the second day, but they're, you know, they're big days. And then it comes to the critical time trial and if you're a rider that relies on that FTP number to understand your pacing for the time trial, you're having to, well, some people not knowing that it erodes or changes from day, from day to day might stick with that 300 FTP number at, uh, to, to, to help with their pacing. But more than likely, if you're uh, an amateur rider, that FTP is going to be, uh, could be considerably lower on time trial day. And so you would want to revise your pacing strategy based on a different number. Is that what I'm hearing here? Is that correct? Well, that's exactly it. And this is why I said at the beginning, trying to come up with this number is like trying to hit a dartboard from 100 feet away and the dartboard is moving. This is the moving part of the dartboard. Your threshold uh, one day might be, say, 250 watts. The next day, it's 240. The next day, it's 260. And if you're doing a stage race, it's probably mostly just going down. But it's going to change day to day to day. And this is why you have to be... We have been saying this throughout the show, particularly lately, and this is why we're using this as a summary episode. 
we're trying to find all these sophisticated metrics, but at the end of the day, the best cyclists use feel, and this is part of it. Feel is taking responsibility for yourself instead of just relying on some number that A, is really hard to figure out, and B, is constantly changing. So if you just rely on that number and go, well, my threshold is X, therefore I'm going to time trial at that, I see athletes be unsuccessful doing that more than I see them being successful. Where the best go out, they say, okay, my threshold's typically 320. Uh, I'm going to target around there, see how I feel. And they might find out 10 minutes in or five minutes in, hey, I'm kind of tired today, so I'm going to bring it down. I'm going to go lower. Or they might go, I'm feeling amazing today. I'm going to bring it up. You have to trust that feel. One last thing I just want to bring up, that, that review that compared CP to, to MLSS brought up this, the importance of this fuzziness. And so I'm just going to read you one little bit out of it. Let me just quickly find it or find the starting points. I'm not starting mid-sentence again. There is therefore a bandwidth or gray area surrounding the modeled CP estimate, the size of which can be minimized to approximately plus or minus 3 to 5% with careful attention to the uh, to protocol. So notice I said, if you do this right, you can have a 3 to 5% variance. For example, for a CT estimate of 300 watts and a standard error of 2%, so on the, the low side, the real CP will lie between 294 and 306 watts. This means, however, that if this particular subject is exercised at exactly 300 watts, there is a 50% chance that he or she would be below CP and in the heavy intensity domain, and a 50% chance that he or she would be above CP and in the severe intensity domain. This would have important implications for physiological responses, the nature and dynamics of fatigue development and exercise tolerance. This is what we're up against. It's really hard to come up with an accurate number. If you do come up with an accurate number, it's kind of fuzzy. It varies day to day. And when you go out to do your interval work, if you just rely on that number, it could be one day you're training a little too easy and another day you're training too hard. This is why when we have people say, well, you know, I'm five watts below my threshold, is, is that changing things? We go, if somehow you actually knew your exact threshold and you're five, 10 watts below it, yes, we can make statements about that, but we have no idea if you actually were five, 10 watts below on that particular right. day. Right. Yeah. We don't know the accuracy of the test itself. We don't know how that uh, corresponds with your uh, number on the day. We don't know a, a lot of things we would need to, to answer that question. And, it, and, and again, it comes right back to your suggestion that when you're riding, racing, training, or otherwise, you do have to rely more on just a number. There's more to it than that. You have to use your brain. You have to use the feelings that you have to assess, go through the checklist, um, and take stock of all of the things that um, are, are coming at you, numbers, feeling, heart rate, power numbers, etc., to, to figure out, yeah, this, is, this feels good right now, or this is too hard, or this is not hard enough. And, you know, feeling isn't 100% accurate either, 
but uh, it helps add to the, the, the tools, if you will, to, to make more accurate assessments. The best athletes, the ones who have been training a long time and have been very successful, they, they go out, they, they'll often go out to do their training with a number in mind. But as soon as they get out there, they listen to the feel and then they adjust. So we had Sepp Kuss talk about that in the show, that he'll go out with a target power range. He, tar- he, he trains by power. He'll do one interval and then go, okay, how do I feel today? And then he adjusts his numbers. And, and that's what we're getting at, is this number is really hazy. So it's a guide, but you have to take responsibility. And hopefully you go out and you have a number in mind and you ride at that that number and you actually feel like it's spot on and you do that but you know every once in a while you have to adjust but the the hope is that if you've done everything correctly and you've taken stock of all of these things you 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 um get to know yourself as an athlete you set those numbers you set the objective for the day at um the number that's appropriate and and that works out on the road it feels feels like that's right where you should be but it's not always the case agreed as Jim, as Jim Miller, I think it was Jim Miller said in a recent episode, you know, some days you go out and you just don't feel very good, um, but you get past that. <laughs> and the, the next, the next training ride, you you do things differently and you feel differently and you assess that ride as a, you know, as its own thing and try to forget the the bad day that you have because you're inevitably going to have the bad days. Even the even world champions have bad days. Right. And then you get into the whole art form of sometimes you go out and just go, yeah, today my anaerobic threshold's a little lower. A couple of days ago, it was 290. Today, it's 275. So you adjust. Differentiating that from, I'm cooked. I shouldn't be trying to do anything hard today. I'm going to turn around and go home. Yep. Perhaps we've already said this in so many ways, but going back to my my big question about what's what's the harm here in using these estimates? Well, we talked about this uh, in the past, I think it's worth um, reiterating, and that is that the the numbers that we're speaking about here today are often used to um, plug into other formulas that have been created that have become popular and that people are starting to rely heavily on to help them de- design their training. So if the threshold power number that you plug into these formulas, it's an estimate, but if it's a bad estimate, then you're going to put bad data into a formula and you're going to consequently get bad data out of that formula. And then that runs the risk of, of throwing your training off completely. Right. Are there any, what are the, what are, do I have that right, Trevor? And what are some other problems? Is that, is that the big one? No, I I think you are spot on is that if you're using a number that's an estimate that varies as the basis for everything else and everything's built on top of that, you get more and more error as you move up. So you have to look at all this stuff. You know, look, I, I use WKO. I analyze my athletes constantly. But you always have to do it with a grain of salt and not believe that this is so 
specific and accurate as a lot of people want to believe it is. And that's, you know, Tim came on the show. He's the guy creating this software saying, no, you, you, you can't see this as gospel. It is a guide. It helps, but it, it's not perfect, and nor can it ever be perfect because of how hard it is to come up with these numbers and how much these numbers fluctuate. You know, I'll give you an example. We were talking with Tim about TSS. Uh, I went yesterday and did a six and a half hour ride with 12,000 feet of climbing. I started with a hard climb. I finished with a hard climb. According to my TSS, the hard climb that I started with generated more training stress. I can tell you from feel I was killing myself on that final climb. I was not killing myself on that first climb because of that durability. I was tired by the end of this ride. My numbers had all declined, but TSS doesn't factor that in. It treats you like you're fresh throughout. So according to it, that second climb or that final climb just didn't generate as much training stress. So that's where one of the places people can get themselves in trouble is not factoring that in, thinking every TSS number that you generate is equal, which is not the case, and that's where you can start overtraining. So another big question for you, Trevor. We've pointed out, again, generally speaking, we've pointed out four or five different methods here, and all of them have their flaws, but people need this number to, to to help guide zones and and training and and so forth. So what do you suggest here? Is it a matter of um, testing not too frequently, but frequently enough that you can fine tune these numbers over time? Is it you know if you have access to a reputable lab, getting in there and getting tested to get some baseline data, and then and then use that number to say you get a, a CP number or an MLSS number or a, a, a threshold number from an incremental step test in a lab? Do you use that to guide your FTP testing in the future to sort of check it to make sure it all uh, works out correctly? What, you know, long-winded way of saying, how can people best find their threshold without making mistakes or having it be um, so rough of an estimate that it hurts them and rather than helps them? I'm going to go with the, I think any of these are fine as long as you recognize that, again, this is not dogma. That number can be a little bit off. Uh, there's still value to, to doing them. You know, even the, the FTP test, the 20-minute test, not highly accurate but it can show improvements over time. So as long as you get that number and take it with a grain of salt, I think it can be incredibly valuable, both to show your progress and to guide your training. Uh, I think, as I said before, I think you need to learn feel, but the number, particularly for a very novice cyclist, can be very helpful. So I've worked with athletes who are brand new. I tell them to go out and do threshold intervals, and let's say their their true threshold was 250. They go out and throttle themselves at 400 watts and don't complete the intervals because they have no sense of feel. So for those athletes, let's go do a test. We might come up with 240 watts or 260 watts as opposed to their actual 250, say. So it's not 
quite accurate, but it's still better having them go out and attempt it at 260 watts than their gut impulse of I'm going to start at 400 watts and blow up. Mm-hmm. It at least gives some guidance. But you need to learn that feel over time. And what you see in the best athletes is, let's say, again, their, their actual threshold is 300. They, they measure it at 320. The really good athletes are going to go out and do intervals and go, yeah, 320 ain't right. They'll, they'll use it as a starting point, but they'll do their intervals at the 300. My personal bias is the number's a guide. It'll help you. It'll show progress. You can get other information as well, such as substrate utilization, et cetera. But uh, at the end of the day, know that that number is a ballpark and it's feel that's going to get you the rest of the way there. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone. Send it our way and hopefully we'll play it in an upcoming Q&A episode. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.